The text for this morning's service is Daniel 5, the whole chapter. And then after the preaching, after the sermon, we will sing together hymn 80, stances 1 through 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, no doubt you are all familiar with the expression about the writing on the wall. To see the writing on the wall usually refers to a negative event that is most certainly going to overtake you. When you have seen the writing on the wall, then you have seen the obvious, and then you had better realize what is going to happen. The expression comes from this chapter in Daniel. It is a well-known and very rich part of God's word. In this chapter, we meet Belshazzar, who during a decadent feast with about a thousand people present sees a lifeless detached hand writing something mysterious on the white plaster near a lampstand. What does it mean? Belshazzar himself is terrified. He has no idea. But he has a premonition that the message is not a good omen for him. We, of course from our vantage point, know what these words mean. For God has revealed this meaning to Daniel, and so also to us by including it in his word. And that is enough. For he gives us an excellent summary of the actual meaning of the text on the wall and the message that God was bringing to Belshazzar. But there is more than meets the eye here. There's also an elaborate wordplay at work. There are many nuances to that message, to that writing on the wall. You can only understand that from the original language and from the culture of that day. It is, one, it is a wonderful message for those who believe, but a dire warning to those who don't believe. It's a timely message which also makes a connection to the birth of Christ. And so this morning I will bring you the message of God as contained in the mysterious writing on the wall. We will see three things. First of all, Belshazzar's feast. Second, secondly, Belshazzar's fear. And then thirdly, Belshazzar's fate. First, then, about the feast. Nearly 70 years has passed since Daniel first appeared upon the scene, and some 30 years since the events described in chapter 4. Daniel is well into his 80s by now. Nebuchadnezzar has long since died. And so in the meantime, a lot has happened. Nebuchadnezzar has been succeeded by his son, who reigned only a few years, and who was then assassinated by his brother-in-law. After four years, he was killed in battle. Then another son-in-law, Nabonidus, ascended the throne. Belshazzar, the person mentioned here in chapter 5, is his son. Or sure, it says in the text that Nebuchadnezzar is his father, but in the Hebrew and Aramaic language, the word for a father casts a wider net than our word. Father can also refer to predecessor or grandfather, 
and that is the case here. Belshazzar was actually the son of Nabonidus, but he was not the sole ruler. He was co-regent with his father, Nabonidus, and was in in charge of the affairs of Babylon, while his father, Nabonidus, spent extensive periods of time at Tima in Arabia. And that is why Belshazzar could offer to Daniel, if he were to explain to him the writing on the wall, to be the third highest person in the kingdom. His father, he and his father, were the other two rulers. Because of extensive archaeological digs and some very extensive written accounts, a lot is known about this time period. The Babylonian Empire at this point is under grave threat. Throughout the land, the Persians, together with the Medes, had conquered city after city. Only a few days before the events described here in chapter 5, the Persians had taken over the city of Opis in a bloody battle and had already crossed over the Euphrates. The following day, and so the day just before the events described here in this chapter, the city of Sippar, which was nearby to the city of Babylon, had surrendered without a fight. And that stood in the way, and Babylon stood in the way of total Persian conquest at this point. But that city was heavily fortified and had great and strong walls all around it. And the city was also well supplied. It would take quite something to conquer that city. And the Babylonians, those inside of that city, knew it. The city of Babylon was second to none. 1.2 million people lived there. The city was 60 miles around and was surrounded by a wall 350 feet high by 87 feet across. Historians tell us that four full chariots could raise a breast on top of that wall. Guards were constantly on watch as if they were guarding a prison wall. There was also a 30-foot moat, which is a trench filled with water, outside the wall that ran around the city. Babylon was virtually impregnable. However, at the time of the events described in this chapter, the Persians, together with the Medes, were just outside of the city gates, and they were trying to find a way to get in. They had already for some time been digging around the city walls. Evidently, the Babylonians inside the city were not aware of what the Persians and Medes were up to. In all probability, they thought that they were trying to build a mound against the city in order to conquer it. They were not worried, however. They did not believe that they could succeed. After all, the walls are virtually impregnable and too well guarded. However, what the Medes and Persians were actually doing was something very clever and something which would take the Babylonians by total surprise. We will see what they did in a moment. It is in the midst of all this that Belshazzar decided to have a feast. He is convinced of his invincibility and in his confidence wants to show off his fearlessness. 
there is, of course, nothing wrong with having a feast. No doubt most of us during the Christmas season will also partake of various parties and feasts. The Lord gives us his bounty to enjoy. But if you do it to celebrate your own accomplishments, and if you do not put God into the picture, then you are asking for trouble. This is certainly what happened to Belshazzar. He, like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, was a proud and arrogant man. He was a heathen through and through. And he was used to indulging the flesh without considering the consequences. He was accountable to no one. So he celebrates. He brings out the wine. People under the influence of alcohol lose their inhibitions and become bolder in their actions. That's what we see happen here. He orders the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem to, produce, to be produced from the storehouses. It was an act of open defiance calculated to insult the God of the Israelites. I would imagine the scene to be something like this. Belshazzar is seated on his throne in a prominent place in the banquet room. The slave whom he had ordered to bring in the sacred goblets from the temple in Jerusalem hands one of them to him. He takes his private wine, pours it into the goblet in full view, and smirking with arrogance brings the goblet to his inebriated lips. He praises the gods he worships, the various gods who supposedly gave him the many earthly things to enjoy, and he does this in defiance to the God of the Israelites. After all, he and his gods are superior to everyone and everything else. And then the crowd erupts in cheering and in loud applause. The music and the dancing start up again. The party is in full swing. But then we come to the second point. There is a startling interruption of the party. In the midst of the decadent revelry, a human hand appears and writes on the plaster of the wall. It happens right in front of the king. Belshazzar stops dead in his track. The self-confident smirk is replaced by a look of surprise, of terror. There is a sudden change in mood. The king's face turned pale and his knees knocked together and his legs gave way because of fear. The music and the laughter stop. Belshazzar has no idea what it means. Oh, sure, he recognized the letters, for they are in his own language, in Aramaic, and they are familiar words. But there are so many different ways in interpreting these words. There are so many different levels in which you can understand them. What is the message? Belshazzar is at a loss. The suspense is heightened. Who is going to be able to tell him the meaning of these words? In his consternation and anxiety, he summons the wise men of Babylon. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he promises him great, he promises them great riches and honor. But none of these men could interpret these words. He is now even more frightened than before. And then the queen comes upon the scene. Commentators do not agree as to exactly who she was, 
Some say that she was Belshazzar's mother, the daughter of the king Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever the case, she is certainly familiar with Daniel. She knows what he has done in the past, in the past and what he is capable of. As I stated, Daniel is by now well into his 80s. In spite of all the idolatry around him throughout his life, he had kept himself unblemished. He served the God of his fathers since his youth and never abandoned him. Somehow and amazingly, he survived in such an ungodly world, and his reputation had remained intact. Even Belshazzar knew of his existence. For he asked him if he is Daniel, one of, one of the exiles his father had brought from Judah. Belshazzar has confidence in his abilities and offers him a fortune if he can interpret the words on the wall. Daniel, however, wants to have nothing to do with his money or with anything else that Belshazzar has to offer him. He wants to stay close to his convictions and principles and not be compromised in any way. And that has been the strength of Daniel throughout. Already since a young boy, when he was brought into the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, he had refused to be compromised by the things this world has to offer. Daniel knew that if he remained faithful to God and renounced dependence on earthly riches and on personal reputation, that then God will be with him and bless him and be with him in all his ways. Daniel especially had to withstand a lot of pressure. And these pressures are much greater than the kinds of pressures you and I have to withstand. For we can worship God freely and amongst our own people. We have our families and friends who are of like mind. We do not stand alone. We have each other. And we do not have to fear for our lives in order to worship God. That's a good thing. Or else we might be lost. But nevertheless, we too are in so many ways lured into the ways of the world. In our workplaces through social media and modern entertainment, we are enticed to indulge the beautiful things that this world has to offer and make them more important than anything else. Daniel kept in mind that none of such material things mean anything without God. And the same thing is true for you and for me. Our Christmas celebration, our feasting, and our enjoyment of this life, and anything else that this life has to offer, offer, are nothing without God. Because Daniel lived what he preached, he could also speak with great authority. And that is what he does as he addresses King Belshazzar. He begins by reminding him of the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar's rule, and that he humbled himself. Note well again that he does not speak here about the fact that he repented, because Nebuchadnezzar didn't. But he was humbled, and he had to acknowledge God as the supreme ruler. But he especially point out that when Nebuchadnezzar became proud, that then he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. And that was a lesson to all. And then comes the clincher. He says, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. After this, he gives the explanation. We come to the third point. 
Now things get a little bit technical. That is why I have some of those extra words behind me on the screen. Please pay close attention. We are told that the hand wrote the words Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson on the wall. But please know that Daniel gives a summary of only three words. And the last word is a little bit different. There are technical linguistic reasons for that, and we do not need to get into that. We will just look at the words that Daniel explains in the text, those three words, Mene, Mene, and Omene, Tekel and Parson, Paris. What is helpful for us to note is that in Hebrew and also in Aramaic, which is the language used in this chapter, and which is a cognate language, that words are written in continuous script. In other words, there are no spaces between the letters. And so you would have to understand from the context exactly what was meant. For example, the word on the screen without spaces, God is nowhere, could also read, God is now here. Those are totally different and opposite meanings. And that is also one of the difficulties that the wise men had. They didn't know exactly how to divide up the words. There was also the difficulty that in the Hebrew, in its cognate language, Aramaic, the words contained only consonants and not vowels, just like the word B-L-D-G behind me. Without the vowels, that word could mean either building or bulldog. Again, only the context can determine what would be meant. If you had a sentence which was obviously about animals, then you would know that you are referring to a bulldog. But a sentence where the dwellings of people are referred to, then it is obvious that the word building is meant. And so the reason the Babylonian wise men could not read the inscription was not that they could not recognize the letters, but that they did not know the context in which these words were used. They didn't know how to divide them up either. They didn't know how to divide a series of letters into words, and therefore they didn't know exactly what vowels to supply either. And these wise men knew that they would be severely punished if they got it wrong. And so they wisely admitted that they were not able to read the subscription. And so we are back to the meaning of these words. As you see them without vowels and spaces, these words can be understood on three different levels. In the first and most obvious level, these words can refer to stones, which were used as weights. Just about every business establishment would use such stones or weights with their balance scales. They had the same purpose as cash registers today. Archaeologists have discovered many such weights or stones, which sometimes even had those very letters written on that wall, also on those stones. They had the word mina described on them, which was about 500 grams, and tekel, which was about 8 grams, and peras, which weighed about 250 grams. But instead of nouns, these letters could also be taken as verbs, verbs referring to various ways of weighing and assessing. 
Daniel used both noun and verb forms for his interpretation. It was common in those days to use wordplay in various forms of interpretation. And that is what the Lord God taps into. He taps into that world. And now God uses Daniel to give his stamp on this. It is a clear message to Belshazzar and all the people in that banquet hall that God is the one who controls all things and that he is the one who gives and controls all the signs, all the signs and seasons. And now he tells them that he is going to lose his kingdom. God has weighed him on the scales. And that is the essential message of those three letters on the wall. It is also interesting to note that scales played such a prominent place in the message. For you see, the message is further emphasized by the imagery of scales because of an astronomical connection with the constellation Libra. Let me explain. As I said earlier, a lot is known about that time period and also about what happened on that night. It is known as a certainty that Babylon fell on the 12th of October, 539 before Christ. Among the Babylonians, that very date was associated with the rising of the constellation Libra. And the constellation Libra is represented by scales. The astrologers will no doubt have been keenly aware of that connection. For the Babylonians were ardent observers of the sky and religiously studied the stars. The astrologers in, in the Babylonian court were specialists in celestial divination and were counted among the wise men. And so the very night that his handwriting on the wall appeared was also the very date of the annual rising of the constellation Libra, that is, of the rising of the scales. God uses the wisdom of the world to their shame and shows his almighty power and wisdom to those heathen men. And the message that they had to receive is the one is that he is the one who controls the stars, that he is the one who uses the stars as signs to show all of mankind as to what he is going to do. And there you also see the connection to Christmas. For there is no doubt that all this made quite an impression on the Babylonians. The story of this will have been told over and over. This was passed down through the generations. God's words and signs and wonders are planted in the hearts of these eastern people. And some 540 years later, three wise men came from the east. Three or some wise men came from the east. God's word had aroused the expectation of the coming of the king in the west. They had learned that the God of all ages, the God of Israel, is the one who gives the stars as signs to men. But above all, he gives his word. The very hand that wrote the words on the tablets of Mount Sinai is also the very hand that wrote on the wall in that court in Babylon. It is the hand of the Almighty God Himself. It is the hand of Him who holds everyone and everything in His scales. And that message came across loud and clear. 
to those heathen Babylonians. What a great and powerful message, brothers and sisters. Daniel had told Belshazzar that he had not honored the God in whose hand is his breath. In other words, he had not honored the God of life. And all life is accountable to God. That is the message. And that especially applies to you and to me who have been given to know that God. If we live as if he does not exist, if we think of life as a great big party wherein we can indulge our own wants and desires, then God will also give us the writing on the wall. In other words, he will weigh us in the scales. He will seal our fate. The writing on the wall for Belshazzar meant that he would be destroyed. And indeed, as the text says, that very night, Belshazzar was killed. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus also confirmed this, as did other historians. And he tells us what happened on that night. Babylon was taken without a fight. The Medes and the Persians had ingeniously devised a way to diverge the Euphrates River that ran into the city so that the water levels around the trenches in those moats sank just enough to allow their armies to wade across thigh deep under the cover of darkness. Babylon, supposedly secure behind massive walls, was taken without a fight. God allowed this to happen so that the arrogance of man would be exposed, so that he would be seen as the one who controls all history. He uses these men to his glory, so that it can be seen that all men are accountable to him. Brothers and sisters, God has sent his son in the fullness of time. God sent him and the time was right. King Herod and all the other rulers of the world thought that they were the ones who are making history. That's what Belshazzar thought, and that is also what Nebuchadnezzar thought. That they were the ones who could affect and control the destiny of man. They did not have room for God, as does this mostly godless nation in which we live. And therefore they did not have room for the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not have room for the almighty creator of heaven and earth. In their self-sufficient arrogance, they did not want him. And so they partied it up. And then God comes along and he snatches them away. He shows them for the impotent and insolent creatures that they really are. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, God comes to us with his message of salvation with the message that he is in control of history, that he is in control of your life, of my life, that he will determine what is going to happen, that he determines the paths of the stars, and that he has a plan for all those who belong to him, a great plan for all those who include him in their hearts and minds and thoughts. Think about that during this Christmas season, about God about how God has to be included in your life. And then he will bless you, just like he blessed Daniel and all those who put their trust in him. Amen.